to me is he's not even close right now. And, and, you know, he's such a good hitter and has been for a while now. But right now, he's chasing things. And we talked about it in his final at bat there. He's out in front. He's in between. He's just not picking up the baseball. And there's something that's keeping him from picking up the baseball right now. It would be a bold move for sure, but it might be the best thing for him right now just to take him out, line him, sit him back, and let him regroup a little bit. And I know you're running out of time, and I know the urgency is a big word right now, but the Blue Jays have to stop this, and they have to figure out how they're going to get these guys going. All right, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. That was, of course, Buck Martinez referring to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I don't have a lineup for you yet for game three of this four-game series against the Texas Rangers. I would be flabbergasted uh, to see a lineup that didn't include Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in it, despite the fact that he's 0 for 8 with four strikeouts in this series so far. That that the problem is, one, they're facing a lefty. So maybe it means Spencer Horowitz is in the lineup regardless against the left uh, against the lefty also no Brandon belt. I mean, so what, like you get a Santiago Espinal start or, I mean, the, the bench is not exactly filled with guys that are adequate Vladimir Guerrero jr. Replacements, although hard to do worse than we've seen from the blue Jays first baseman through the first 18 innings of this series. Blue Jays now no longer have the tiebreaker against Seattle. Or the Texas Rangers, they actually do against the defending champs who are still very much in the mix when it comes to battling for this final playoff spot. They're in the AL West lead, the the Houston Astros, but only a game and a half up on the Blue Jays. So lots still to play for, lots to still be decided, but uh, so far not so good through the first two games down at Rogers Center. Um, It's getting better, though, because Keegan Matheson's going to talk baseball with us. He of MLB.com. Hello, Keegan. You know, Ben, I, I always say my two favorite bars are open bars and low bars. And that's a, that's a low bar to clear. I love it. All right, All right man. Uh, there's so much to get to with this team. None of it is good. Here, let's just start with this. Because, um, I, I, you know, I was thinking about the rosters of all these teams that are battling it out for this final playoff spot. And I, I think despite the fact the Blue Jays own the tiebreaker against the Astros, they're the champs, man. Like, I, I, I don't think there's a, a real logical argument to be made that any of these teams are superior to the Houston Astros. The Mariners, okay, they, they pitch just about as well as the Blue Jays, and at least they have a superstar that at times has looked like a superstar and, and led that team to a couple of eight-game winning streaks recently to get them back into the playoff mix. And the Rangers, we know they have flaws, certainly in the bullpen, although we haven't seen it necessarily in this series. Um, the rotation hasn't been great as of late, but you, you look at the ERAs of the starters that are throwing in this series, and they're all sub four. And obviously, the offense is like it's getting harder for me to go roster for roster, Blue Jays and any of these teams, and say the Blue Jays have a better roster. It's getting tough when you see it in reality. You know, if these games were played on paper, then we're talking about a different year. But when you see Texas play like they're capable of, it's a good team. There's there's a reason they were out to their own lead in that division. Their recent free fall is a, a bit of an outlier and just poorly timed, frankly, by them. They look like they're bouncing back. And the Mariners, do they have as many dominant names that your casual baseball friend buddy knows? Probably not. But the Mariners just seem to have it, whatever that is. This year, last year, you saw it. They have that something where they have a team identity where they are putting together big games at the right times. And like you said, Ben, with Julio Rodriguez, 
that is the example I keep coming yep. back to over and over for Vladdy. It's yep. possible. That life is out there. That's possible to do, to turn around a season at the biggest possible time. Julio Rodriguez up until August 1st looked like a 22-year-old kid who was super talented, yeah, but was learning the adjustment game of MLB. Well, he's adjusted. He is lighting this league on fire right now. I think it's an 1150 OPS since August 1. That's possible. You can do that, and that's what the Blue Jays need. 100%. Like, even right now, like, starting today, I mean, there's not a ton of games left, but if Vlad went on a, a two, two-and-a-half-week heater to, to wrap up the season, leading the Blue Jays into the playoffs, a lot of the discourse would be forgotten. It just, I mean, the signs just don't appear to be there. So we don't, again, don't have a lineup yet. I don't know if you have one uh, down at the ballpark yet. I, I would be flabbergasted not to see Vlad's name in the lineup. But that's not the only thing you can do because I, I get it. Like, he, is he better than he's shown even, you know, go back to last season, he's a lot better than the guy that we've seen, especially the, the guy we've seen through the first two games of this series. Bo Bichette was bumped down to seventh in the, in the order in August of, of last season. Is, is there an argument to be made that, you know, maybe not removing Vlad from the lineup, but like having him hit third on this team where I get it, you are still missing Matt Chapman, but you got a couple of guys from Buffalo that are hitting in the middle of that lineup, bump them up a little bit. Like, is there an argument to be made to maybe move him out of an RBI position in this lineup? There is one, and I think that's where you get to what the word urgency means. You you know, urgency is one of those many words uh, around this time of year that's thrown around. It doesn't have much of a definition, frankly, but I, I think the closest you can get is a little more urgency in a spot like this. You have a a little shorter patience down the stretch because you need to see it over the next 16, 17 games, not the next four months. You can't have that much patience at this point. And when it comes to Vladdy, it's such a tough decision because you're not just making a numbers decision. You are making a philosophical decision. You are getting into that big, whimsical conversation that goes beyond stuff you can measure because it could happen tomorrow, tonight, the next day where Vladdy hits two bombs, totally changes a game completely. But at the same time, let's take his name away from it. Take Vladdy's name off of his stat line. It's the same OPS as Kevin Kiermaier. Yep. And that's a compliment to Kiermaier. Great season, but that is not getting it done right now. And we have seen, recently at home, and I think this leads to some heightened frustration from Blue Jays fans, understandably. You haven't seen it happening at home from Vladdy. There was that long stretch without a home run early on. Recently at Rogers Center hasn't been good, and now is when you need it. Like you said, a few home runs make us forget a lot. It's like that men in black little blinker. A few home runs, a lot of this narrative is gone if they come at the right time. Yeah, the home OPS is insane. It's 686, which is is, uh, unreal. (laughs) Now, the the converse to that is that his road OPS is actually very possible at 851. But, uh, yeah, it don't matter uh, because the the entire body of work is well below average. I love talking about urgency because, yeah, okay, nobody wants to freak out. And there are physically more baseball games to play after this series. Pretty big one, though, I'd say, uh, against a team that you're directly – uh, chasing or 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 ha- was going to have had chasing you if you had won this series. It's the only one of those you got the remainder of the season, unless you consider the Rays one, uh, and I don't. Um, and as far as, okay, you, you can 
urgency can manifest itself in multiple ways. We talked about the lineup a little bit. We can also talk about roster construction. And, like, I, I do understand Nathan Lucas being the guy that's called up when Brandon Belt is put on the IL. He's been in the major leagues. He's hit well. He can play a position. He's, he's outfield defense insurance as well. Perhaps a late-game defensive replace. I get all that. But the Blue Jays pinch hit um, for Dalton Varsho with the lefty reliever with Santiago Espinal yesterday. And I get it. Like, you don't want to mess with anybody's development. I don't know if you're doing that with two weeks of Arelvis Martinez. I don't know if Arelvis Martinez can hit Major League Pitching. Here's what I'm guessing, though, Keegan. The upside is is a lot higher than Santiago Espinal being a right-handed pinch hitter. Like I, I just don't I don't see the urgency with the roster moves either. Yeah, this has been a real running thing all season. I, I go back to the start of the year where it was going between Nathan Lucas and Jordan Luplo for that last spot on the bench. And listen, it's my entire job to know who's on this roster. There were lots of times I would land in a city and I'd have to quietly say to somebody, who's the last guy in the roster this year? You don't see them. No, they aren't getting into games. And that was obviously done consciously. That was done on purpose by the Blue Jays early in the season because they were healthy. They were very healthy for about four months there. And the 26th man didn't really play much. So that was strategic, and it was on purpose, I think, very clearly. Now, at, at this point of the year, you're starting to see, uh, again, with urgency, they're, they're chasing offense. Like we saw yesterday, it ended up with Davis Schneider and Kevin Biggio in the corner outfields because they were pinch hitting and chasing some hits. It's different now, but you still are not chasing the upside of a, an Addison Barger and a Relvis Martinez, uh, for example, there from AAA. Now, the Blue Jays did that once with Davis Schneider. It has worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spencer Horwitz, I think, has impressed. I think he is a big piece of this team next year and beyond. I really like Spencer Horwitz. But at this point of the year, I think what that signals is that the Blue Jays are still betting on the top of their roster. They're still betting on the, the Vladdies the Varshows, the Kirks, those guys who need to do more. Mm-hmm. Someone like George Springer, he, he's been doing more lately. Bo Bichette, I'm much more confident betting on him going three for four one of these next couple of games. But those guys who are in the middle, the Kirks, Varshows, a, a Vladdy, when you look around the infield at Espinal and some of these other options, it looks like the Blue Jays are still betting on them to do more. And it's a late bet, 145 games in, but that's what this points to for me. And and no no one's giving up, I don't think, on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Because, again, it, was it as, as good as 2021, his 2022 season? No, but it was still, yeah, real good, especially compared to his 2023 season. I wonder, though, Keegan, and, and Ross Atkins is, is never going to deviate from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as a 24-year-old player, and we have all the faith in the world in him, and he's going to be a Blue Jay for a long time to come, and, and blah, 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 franchise icon. That may be true, but like if you injected him with truth serum or any member of the Toronto Blue Jays front office with truth serum after what they've seen here for almost 162 games this season, is there a level of concern that he might not reach those heights? Like how how... How ready are they to maybe concede that point after the season that we've seen from Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? <laughs> if anybody's selling that truth serum, I'm in the market. DM me. Yeah, be good. But this is looking like reality right now. Vladdy coming up as a prospect 
is something that I will never forget. Uh, if I somehow am still doing this job 30 years from now, I'll be that annoying old guy stumbling around the press box talking about those grainy videos of Vladdy in double A, in single A, what he did to pitchers. That was not overhyped. That was not hyperbole. It's something I might not see again covering the Blue Jays. And I'm still, yeah, asterisk, a bit young. I might not see that again. Mm. 2021, his big year, brilliant. That's who he was supposed to be. But you're seeing what adjustments look like in Major League Baseball. Uh, th- this is a conversation we'll have next year with Davis Schneider. Different situation, of course, but pitchers are going to take notice. They're going to say, okay, that guy lit the league on fire. Let's really spend some time looking at video and numbers. That's what happened to Vladdy, and he has not adjusted back. There has not been that counterpunch like we've seen from Julio Rodriguez these last couple months. He figured something out. He saw what they were doing. He countered in a better way. Vladdy hasn't countered in that better way. And with every single passing day and week and month, we get further from 2021. That is further away, further away. And over the last couple of seasons, last year was a bit better than this year has been, but it's been the same type. It's been the same genre of player. Last year was 5 or 10% better. I have not seen that 2021 version of Vladdy last more than a, a game or a couple of days this season, and that is worrying. If you're the Blue Jays, uh, an organization like this, looking at Vladdy, you are thinking long-term. Is this guy a player for X years and X millions of dollars? Are we talking hundreds of millions of dollars? All of the big extensions around baseball you're seeing for young players. And I love those. I want the dollar in the player's hand a hundred times out of 10. But unfortunately, this is an example of why teams can be hesitant sometimes as well. Is that initial flash a sign of 15 years of stardom? Or how are you going to adjust to the league when they really take notice? When pitchers do not want to be that next viral Twitter clip of a guy getting lit up by Vladdy, And we've seen almost two full seasons of Vladdy being that kind of 780 to 810 OPS hitter, which take away the name, fantastic. Put the name in there and everything we know, worrying. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, another example of why you don't always hand those long-term contracts to young players is Alec Manoa, um, who has has spent a, a lot of time in the headlines the last couple of days as it feels like, Somebody really wants one side of the story out there, and, and maybe at the end of the season we'll hear the other side of the story. Um, I mean, that may be a side, and maybe you want to comment on that, but I, I feel like everybody's just about had uh, their say on the matter. It did feel like the Blue Jays' highest postseason upside came on the strength of uh, back-to-back ace-type pitchers when Alec Manoa was getting top five AL, uh, Cy Young Award votes and Kevin Gossman was Kevin Gossman. Now, Kevin Gossman continues to be Kevin Gossman, and the rest of the rotation has been real, real good. Jose Barrios back to his Jose Barrios self, and and Chris Bassett giving you, I think, what you expected out of Chris Bassett. But that's the point, right? Like, Chris Bassett started in a pretty crucial game for the Mets at the end of last season and didn't get the job done. I don't know, even if the Blue Jays get into the postseason, how comfortable they're going to be handing the ball to... Bassett, Barrios, Kikuchi, certainly not Ryu. Like Ryu, even when he was leading the National League in ERA for the Dodgers, wasn't on their postseason roster. 
at the end of the season, if, if there's no return of Alec Manoa, and I don't think he, the Blue Jays are banking on that, is despite the fact that you got four year five starters coming back next season, do you have to look at another high upside starting pitcher? I think you have to, and that's a lot of money involved. Uh, teams aren't exactly trading good starting pitchers. If if you have a young, controllable one that's good, that's what you're building your whole team around. Mm-hmm. So the Blue Jays do not exactly have a big wave of prospects coming up. Number one prospect, Ricky Tiedemann, looks incredible. His ceiling is ridiculous, but we understand how pitching prospects work. And Ricky Tiedemann did miss a lot of time this year. So he'll build up a little bit more, but not a guy you're writing in for 180 innings by any means next year. I think this does open up probably the biggest question of the Blue Jays offseason. Number one, they need depth, period. Last year, Ross Stripling saved this team. My God, Ross Stripling saved this team last year from going deeper into their depth. This year, the first time they lose a starter, they go straight to a bullpen game. Yeah, That tells you everything you need to know about their rotation depth. You're not going to be that lucky three, four, five years in a row. Eventually, you're going to be like every other MLB team, using nine or ten starters in a season. So this goes and starts at Alec Manoa's spot. Is, is he there as the number five? Can you just hand that to him based on every single thing we've seen this year? No. No. And where is that relationship going into camp next year? It's got to get better than whatever's going on right now. So the Blue Jays, I think, have an uncertain need at starting pitcher, which is not a good place to be. At third base, Matt Chapman's a free agent. Mm -hmm. You either sign him, trade for a guy, find another guy, give it to a prospect. Easy. Those, Those are the forks in the road that every front office comes to. You know how to handle those. But... What the Blue Jays are dealing with right now is a murky, unknown, mysterious variable that you can't quite put a finger on. And it's a guy that a year ago, third place, Cy Young voting. Yep. This is such a change, and I think that rotation is still going to be need to address. Yeah, uh, it's why they call it baseball, which makes no sense. Um, all right, last <laughs> one. But before we let you go, Keegan, yeah, I, I, I was expecting – this city to feel like kind of, you know, baseball fever, right? It's meaningful September baseball against a team that you're battling for a playoff spot with. Monday was the lowest attended home game of the season for the Blue Jays. It was a little better yesterday, over 30,000. I don't know, that's a head scratch. Blue Jays are top 10 in in baseball in home attendance. Like the attendance in an overall sense has been good this year. You have any theory as to to why this series has been not as well attended, I'm I'm sure, as the Blue Jays would have liked? Yeah, this has surprised me. And listen, I'm, I'm aware it was a, a Monday night. I know the kids are back in school. It's, uh, I know how rich it is for me to sit here childless with a silly little nighttime <laughs> job writing about baseball. I get it. I'm not the guy that's in the market. But this has surprised me. We all remember 2015 and 2016, where hard to measure or really quantify, but the Blue Jays took over the city. You could feel it. There was a buzz. There was an obsession. All of your friends who don't really watch baseball were asking you about the Blue Jays and trying to get tickets. You do sense this year, just from talking to fans, the once a week I'm brave enough to open my mentions, you you sense a, maybe not frustration, maybe exhaustion is the right word because 
even some of the wins, look at that 15-game stretch against bad teams. Yeah. Even some of the wins didn't feel all that great. And there have not been a lot of those moments, those moments like you would have seen from a Bautista, a Donaldson, et cetera, et cetera, that really put the Blue Jays on the map as that edgy, lovable, chaotic, movie-like team that everyone gravitated towards and said, this is our team, this is Toronto's team. I haven't sensed as much of that. I know this is the ultimate unmeasurable thing, but it's been very unique, very strange up to this point. And I think there is a large sentiment just overall of, uh, okay, it's been good so far, but prove it. Prove it down the stretch and we'll see. Yeah, so far uh, they're proving something. Uh, <laughs> it's nothing good though. Uh, Keegan, always enjoy the time. Thanks, man. You got it, Ben. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. There's Keegan Matheson, MLB.com. Yeah, I have no choice, but to accept that as, if not part of the reason, the whole reason why this series so far has not been well attended. Blue Jays in an overall sense, pretty good attendance. The renovations have been great. I'm going down to the ballpark myself tonight. It's been a spectacular consumer experience outside of the baseball games. You look at the Blue Jays' record at home, it has not been good. And I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg thing. Like, is it not good because there's not enough fans or the fans not showing up because it hasn't been good? But even, like, as Keegan rightly points out, the victories that have come against bad teams, a 10-5 and five stretch, like, that's more than two weeks of a lot of victories. Has it been overly, like, fun? And baseball, I know, can, can feel more like you survive victories than you exalt in, in, in you know, getting the 27th out. It, it seems more like just a battle of attrition when you're watching a team you have an emotional investment in knock off another win on their way to hopefully clinching a postseason spot. But, man, this team, it's... I, I hesitate to say joyless because that speaks to maybe something within like the individual players on this team. Because I, I do want to make a a point of, of, of demarcation in talking about the performance of these players and who they are as people or like some fatal flaw like this. This is the whole Vlad thing. Vlad, while he may have like some lapses on the bases and may occasionally not hustle out of the box because he th- thinks he hits a home run and he goes off the top, like that stuff is okay. Maybe we can put that in in a in a box of hey, you got to figure that out. But I'm I got my screen up right here, the in-house feed of batting practice down at Rogers Center, and this is well before batting practice. Guess who's out there? Guess who's been out there for thirty minutes already? Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Like it's not for a lack of trying with this guy, and not that I think most people are saying that. But this guy obviously wants to be more successful than he's been this season. But it's been an abject disaster. And, man, why does meritocracy work for everybody but Vlad? Okay? And I know he's been moved around, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth maybe this season. But that's it. I mentioned it with Keegan Matheson that Bo Bichette, Came in with a very similar track record as Vlad last season. Very similar prospect hype. Was performing to a pretty similar level to what we've seen from Vlad through almost the entire season. Albeit it was in August and not September. He was banged down to seventh. 
in the order for a couple of games. And that was the moment that he took off. I mean, look at George Springer. One of the best leadoff hitters in the history of the sport. Probably not a Hall of Famer, but like he's going to get some votes. He's going to be in the discussion. He's a World Series MVP. Bumped out of the leadoff spot this season. Whit Merrifield. He's been in and out of the lineup recently because he's had like a 30-game stretch where the offense hasn't been there like it was the first four months of the season. Dalton Varsho finally losing some playing time despite the fact that the front office gave up lots of assets to go out and get him. Kevin Biggio didn't play for like three months because he didn't perform in sparing duty at the, at the beginning of the season. Now, am I comparing Vlad to Kevin Biggio? No, but I'm comparing him to Bo. That happened. And maybe it's, it's not quite what Buck Martinez is calling for and removing him from the lineup. And maybe you're going to screw with yourself where you, you move him down the lineup and immediately he starts hitting. But that's fine, too. Like, I'm, I'm okay with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. being bumped down to seventh tonight and then hitting three home runs. And then you can bump him back up to third. Right now, it's hard to argue that he's better than anybody that's in the Blue Jays lineup right now, and they need to get desperate. Is it a sign of desperation to move Vladimir Guerrero Jr. down to the bottom third of the lineup? You better believe it is. It's panic time. All right. Uh, more baseball coming up later on. We talk to Adnan Verk after 4 o'clock. But when we come back, yeah, Aaron Rodgers, uh, the worst confirmed yesterday, a full tear of his Achilles tendon. Um, who could be the replacement at quarterback? For the New York Jets, and does Aaron Rodgers want to continue his career? We'll talk to a man who knows him well. Andrew Brandt, former Packers CEO, joins me next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Robert Sala continues to reiterate that Zach Wilson is the quarterback of the New York Jets going forward. This is his team. Uh, the job does not get any easier for the Aaron Rodgers-less Jets as they go to Dallas on Sunday to play a Cowboys team that is yet to give up a single point this season in that Sunday night shutdown of the New York Giants. So... Uh, it's a complete tear of Aaron Rodgers' Achilles. Um, also, apparently, the Jets are not going to be reaching out to Tom Brady. Um, let's talk to a man who knows uh, Rodgers very well, Andrew Bryant, former Packers CEO, host of the Business of Sports podcast. Thanks for doing this, Andrew. How's it going? I'm doing well. Good to be with you. So what do you think Aaron Rodgers does now? There have been some reports. I mean, and Robert Salad has been pretty adamant uh, that he believes he will continue his career. It's quite a rigorous road to recovery from an injury of that significance in, in your knowledge of, of what kind of a, a person Aaron Rodgers is. Do, do you have any insight into what you think he will do going forward? Well, let me first say, cause I, as you mentioned, I know him, I knew it was there when we drafted him, signed his first contract. I mean, I'm just sad. I'm sad for him. I'm sad for Jets fans. You know what we sell in sports, as we all know, is hope. 
And there was hope not only for the Jets fans, but for him. His relationship in Green Bay, as everyone knows, got stale. You know, it just was it was just enough. And they replaced him and they took a first round quarterback and they moved on. So now he's got this renewed sense of excitement about his career and he's going to Broadway shows and Knicks games and it looks so great and everybody loves him and the coaches love him. And then it's four plays. So I think before we get to the future, I just had to comment on the past. It was Mm -hmm. such a time for excitement with a franchise that never gets that. And um, it's just sad. Now, I think he'll rehab, of course. You know, he'll rehab like he would as a civilian, even a football player. And I think he makes a decision probably January, February, just like he always does. Mm Mm-hmm about coming back. Some people say he feels like he owes the Jets. Some people say he's going to be done. I just think you have to leave it to him. Yeah, you know what? I, and, and thank you for, um, for, for giving you, your, your emotional response to seeing uh, a guy you know well go down in, in such a heap because, yeah, despite the many millions of dollars, it's a human being, and obviously this is a devastating moment for him. Um, maybe you can speak to the idea that, yeah. I mean, in, to, to be the – quarterback of the Packers in Green Bay is obviously a level of celebrity in that market that is second to none, but it, it's still Green Bay, Wisconsin. Right. And maybe comparing that to being the the quarterback of a of a pro sports team in, in New York City, how how different it would be living in Wisconsin and, and New York City for him. You know, I can share that even from my point of view. Yeah. Because I moved I'm from I'm from big cities. I moved to Green Bay, and you know I got to say the things that were exciting at the the beginning, where everyone knows you, you see everyone in town, you see the players in town everywhere. It's like this uh, incredible experience where <laughs> you're the town wraps itself around you, the whole area, and that's the reason I personally had to get out of there. I mean, because by the, by seven, eight, nine, ten years of that, like the walls start closing in, and I could not leave my house and not be asked about the team. And that's just not the way I wanted to live. You know, as for a superstar like Aaron, I think people understand who he is and leave him alone, and he had good friends there outside of the team. But I think, like I said, we all kind of need a change the amount of time he spent in Green Bay is probably one of the longest times that anyone spent anywhere in the NFL, you know, beyond the Tom Brady Patriots years. So he is now in New York. Now, New York, we hear about this harsh media, right? But yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. You know, this is a team that drafted Sam Darnold and Zach Wilson, number three and number two overall in the draft. And they both have looked like busts, at least for them. Yeah, I don't hear a lot of harshness from the New York media about that. But but Aaron was the hope. You know, I don't know a lot about football, but they're not going anywhere with Zach Wilson. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, pretty safe to say. I mean, we saw that story play out, and it was an incredible feat for them to get to seven wins uh, a year ago. Uh, and, and the defense looks legit as well, but certainly going to need a little bit more than I think Zach Wilson can provide. Um, back to Rogers though for for a second here, Andrew, and and he's obviously beloved in Green Bay d- despite the divorce. Um, and you know what, Brett Favre is obviously still right. beloved in Green Bay despite everything that's happened off the field. 
and despite the fact that he played for a divisional rival as well, it doesn't matter. Like ultimately, when all is said and done and his career is over, he's going to go back to be to Green Bay and have his number retired, and he's going to go into the Hall of Fame. Yada yada yada. But I I do wonder. Do you think there's an element of of legacy involved here? Like, do do, do you do you believe Aaron Rodgers does think about hey maybe not going out in this this manner and 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 proving to everybody that he's still got something left? Of course, you know, of course. I mean, like I said, a sense of renewal coming to the Jets where he knows the coach. He's him and Salah seem to have a bond. He got to know these young players. He's with leader and. Hard knocks kind of showed the level of respect everyone had for him. And it's just sad. We obviously haven't heard from him. We may not hear from him for a while. This is a devastating injury. Um, I just feel like at some point he's going to come back and be a leader for that team on the sideline. But you can only, as everyone knows, you can only do so much from the sideline. Yes, they have good defense. Yes, they have good running game. They have a dynamic receiver in Wilson. Yeah. They're not, they're not going anywhere without with Zach Wilson. They're just not. No. <laughs> the, the, yeah. That, that, again, very fair. Um, I, I want to go back to, to, to Rodgers and his experience behind Brett Favre and, and the disappointment that he couldn't get yeah. into games and the multiple games or multiple seasons he spent behind Brett Favre. And I, I find it hard to believe that he was getting much mentorship from, from Brett Favre. And I wonder how that, that impacted him as far as his relationship with backup quarterbacks. And I wonder what you think, you know, whether or not Aaron Rodgers ends up on the sideline going forward. I imagine he's still going to be around the Jets facilities. How do you think he will interact with, with Zach Wilson, who at least the Jets believe there, there is some salvaging left there? Yeah, I mean, listen, I dealt with Brett and Aaron in my time, and... It was frosty at the beginning. I am proud to say, because I hope I had a little bit to do with it, uh, that relationship warmed over the three years. But that's not easy. You know, when I heard from Brett a lot, like, hey, hey Andrew, it's not cool coming into work every day and sitting with your replacement. And I'm sure that's how Aaron felt these last three years. Mm. At some point, the Packers were moving to love. And it turned out to be exactly the same time period that they moved to Rodgers, three years. And both were traded to the Jets. Hmm. And it's just uncanny how eerie it is for me, especially to look at this situation. And Aaron's traded the Jets with what we thought was still several years of a career. Now we just don't know. But I do think... He was a good mentor for Jordan Love and has been for the past four months for Zach Wilson, and I think he'll be out there again for Zach Wilson. I really do. Uh, we'll see. I'd love to hear from him. Um, it does feel like he's if he re- returns or, or makes a comment, it's going to be on Pat McAfee's show first. It feels like that's that's the avenue he, he chooses to make his statements. Um, let, let's talk about the, the practical implications of – of Aaron Rodgers not playing this season for the Jets and, and maybe not playing again for, for the New York Jets. It's, it's a multi-year contract. What, what are the cap implications if, if Aaron Rodgers doesn't play or say he decides to retire? 
Well, the cap is pretty much set in stone. That's not going to change. I mean, he uh, reworked $108 million, which was heavily slanted to 2024, into $75 million, $37 million this year, $38 million next year. And, you know, taking on that $108 million contract, the way the Jets reworked it to get a lot of cap room this year, in other words, he's only counting like $9 million this year, but he counts 30-something next year. And then, of course, because they put in a dummy, this is kind of inside cap stuff mm-hmm. for people, but they put in a dummy dummy third year, a void year, which he's never going to play, and pushed all the proration into there. So 2025 is going to be a huge number on the cap for the Jets, just like 2023 is a huge number on the cap for the Packers, for Aaron Rodgers. A bigger... You know, that's all kind of uh, accounting part of it. Mm-hmm. The cash part of it is more interesting because $38 million is on the books for next year cash. Mm. If he retires, that's gone. So I know the, the Jets aren't hurting for cash, but Aaron, would Aaron Rodgers walk away from $38 million? Now, he was supposed to make a lot more this year from the Packers, and everyone thought maybe he would walk away. But he went into the darkness and came back wanting to play. So when he comes back, I'm sure that's got to be a factor. Like, is he going to walk away from $38 million? Holy cow. Yeah, $38 million bucks. I don't care if you've made hundreds of millions of dollars. $38 million bucks is still $38 million, bucks, Andrew. Uh, so, and, and the capital implications, are, are they, they remain even if he decides to walk away from that money? They remain. Now, they can push it out if he doesn't retire till say, June 2024. They can push a lot of it, most of it, into 2025. Mm. But that's going to be kind of a tricky situation. <laughs> What's he going to say all offseason? I think I'm coming back. Yeah. And then he retires in June. You know, that's going to be weird. No, uh, I, I wouldn't fault him at all for, for continuing to rehab and attempting to come back. And you know what? I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility, especially considering uh, some of the aged quarterbacks we've seen recently and, and the, the rule changes. I will say, though, it would certainly help if they put in real grass at, at MetLife Stadium and, and the NFLPA putting out a statement um, uh, along the lines of that. And many players have, have uh, taken to Twitter to voice their opinions on their desire for all 32 stadiums to have real grass on the field. Like how realistic is that request? You know, I've been, I just did another interview just about that. I think that this is a pie in the sky argument from the players and we wouldn't be having it if it wasn't Aaron Rodgers, right? Players get injured on turf every day. Um, I think it's great if we could get grass fields. I think good luck. Good luck trying to get owners to do that. It's more expensive. And when do you know NFL owners to do something just for the good, (laughs) just to help out the player, just to feel good? I mean, uh, these guys haven't been paying attention. If the players' union thinks they're going to just do grass fields because we complain about it, no. They're going to have to give something, right? This is The owners are going to want a bargain for that because it's going to cost them a lot of money. And my point is, what do they have to give? The players are giving away a lot already, 17th game, everything. Like, what do they have to give? Hmm. So I just I sort of shake my head every time I see these calls for grass fields. Good luck. Yeah. 
Lambo obviously has uh, the frozen tundra. It's got it got yeah. real grass. Like, what is the actual cost to maintenance? And then, like, you know, I, I don't know what what the the concert situation is or the the off season situation at Lambo. Like, what are we talking here as far as you know the the actual financial impact of of putting in a grass field at, at whatever half of the stadiums that don't have it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, whatever the number is, it's big. It's pocket change for billionaires. Yeah, but yeah. they're not doing it. I mean, how does that work so far? <laughs> you know, like, and then people say, well, players won't come to the big time players won't come to people with uh, turf fields. Well, Aaron Rodgers just did. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I'm just try- I'm trying to I'm trying to not be frustrated about these players asking for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, last one before we let you go, Andrew. Uh, Chris Jones ends the holdout. It's over. One week, uh, his team lost in, in a, a one-score game, and he will return in Jacksonville for the Chiefs. And it's it's hard to, hard for me to, to to gather that he gained all that much, especially considering he didn't even negotiate a clause in the contract that didn't allow the Chiefs to franchise him at the end of this season. What what do you make of of the the very short Chris Jones holdout? I don't get it. I just tweeted about it. I don't understand it. I don't see what he accomplished. He, he was supposed to make nineteen and a half million. Now he's making eighteen million based on losing week one pay. He gets no new money. He gets incentives, some of which require him to be defensive player of the year, some of which require him to be in the Super Bowl or win the Super Bowl. I, I don't get this. I thought he'd stay out after the season, come back and get a no tag clause. He doesn't even get a no tag clause. It makes zero sense unless he just wanted a vacation from training camp, which he's got two million of fines. He's still got to pay. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't understand it. And this happens a week after Nick Boza, another holdout, gets one of the best deals in the history of the league. Yeah. So this is a tale of two holdouts. Yeah. One went completely the team's way Jones and one went completely the player's way in Bosa yeah it could be an awkward situation when those two agents run into each other but uh, that's a different (laughs) conversation Andrew uh, I very much appreciate the time thanks for doing this all right thanks and people asking about the newsletter just go to andrew-brandt.com and I riff on this stuff every week in the newsletter absolutely uh, andrew-brandt.com thank you Andrew all right, former Packers executive, business of sports podcast, Andrew Brandt used to work in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I think he's correct in the way he talks about the potential for all 32 stadia in the NFL to have real grass. Here's the thing. The NFLPA should have shut up, maybe, because once you let it be known that it's something that you are, you're very much desiring of, that becomes a bargaining chip. And at the next CBA negotiation, the owners across from the table looking at you and they're looking at things that they want, real or imagined. But even if they're imagined, the idea is to convince the other party that you really want them and that it's a massive capitulation for you to give it. Players now are in this situation where at the next CBA, yeah, that's a, that's a real thing. And it's not that important, really, in the ultimate. What's more important, guaranteed contracts or real grass? I think it's guaranteed contracts. 
And not to say that those are two line items that are going to be equally negotiated, but they are two things that will come to the table at the next CBA negotiation. Unlikely to happen. And as Andrew rightly points out, I, I don't, not just NFL owners. I don't know if there's ever been a billionaire. That's probably unfair. But like there's very few billionaires who are just like, yeah, let's do that because it's for the greater good. That's not how billionaires become billionaires generally has been my experience. So yeah, I, as much as I love real grass, as much as the next guy, it feels unlikely. All right, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has wrapped up his early batting practice. We have a lineup for you as well. As the Blue Jays play game three of four against the Texas Rangers. You're not going to believe this. Vlad in the lineup. Hitting third, playing first base. Uh, George Springer leading off in right field. Bobich had a DH day for him, which means Ernie Clement is hitting eighth. He's playing shortstop. Dalton Varsho is the center fielder today. Alejandro Kirk in there is the catcher, despite the fact that he came in to yesterday's game. He's playing a whole bunch. Um, yeah, yeah. It is, it's, it's not cutting time. Santiago Espinal playing third base, so no Kevin Biggio. I get it, it's a lefty, but Kevin Biggio's come up with hits against lefties as well. With Merrifield back in the lineup, playing left field. Davis Schneider hitting fourth for your Toronto Blue Jays. So no Spencer Horowitz against a lefty, but he will no doubt be a pinch hit option. I, I, I want to follow up on something that I just, I, I brought up to Keegan Matheson, but didn't expand on. And I want to do that right now. Desperation. I guess you can consider Davis Schneider hitting fourth an act of desperation. It's like, it's an act of stupidity if he's not hitting in the top four. So I, I don't really consider that. It's not desperation. Maybe playing Alejandro Kirk a whole whole lot is is desperate, I, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe having only one of Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer in the lineup against the lefty is an act of desperation. I, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of desperation happening in the lineup. And again, with the roster decisions, there is definitely not a lot of desperation. Aurelvis Martinez, I get it. The AAA hitting environment, the offensive environment, like the average OPS is around 800. He's been above that all season long. He's taking walks. He's still striking out, but he's hitting home runs. This is going back to the beginning of August. Yesterday, played in a game for the Bisons, took a couple of walks. Had a single and a run scored. His OPSing 840 in AAA this season. Am I 100% sure that you call up Aurelvis Martinez and maybe you give him the occasional DH spot? Am I, cons- am I like 100% convinced that Aurelvis Martinez is even able to keep his head above water at the major league level? Absolutely not. Am I even 50% convinced of that? I couldn't say. Maybe it's around like 25, 30%. But here's what I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the offensive ceiling of Santiago Espinal. And that's as a bottom of a roster play. Like he's a major league player. Can play all over the diamond. Defense has kind of waned a little bit, which is super weird. But, and he was an all-star last year on the strength of an incredible first half of the season. Santiago Espinal is a utility infielder end of the roster type dude. And if he's playing any more than that, you got a big problem. If he is pinch hitting for you, you have a problem. He was pinch hitting yesterday. This is where we're at with this team. There was no depth. And they got guys in the 20, 
eighth man spot now that rosters have expanded in September that never play. How many guys have to go down before Nathan Lucas is told to put on a helmet? All of them. I I, I don't understand the argument that Aurelvis Martinez is going to turn into a pumpkin now if you call him up to the major leagues and maybe he only gets a start a week or he's only DHing and he's only, you know, he's in his early 20s. No. We're talking about a couple of weeks of baseball. There are only positives that come out of this for Aurelvis Martinez. I don't care if he strikes out every time. If that's the case, eh, maybe you don't play him again. Throw him on the bench, just like you were doing with Nathan Lucas. But I know the upside is higher than pinch-hitting Santiago Espinal. I just have not seen the desperation with this team as far as the roster construction. I get it. In the middle of July when people are calling for it, or August, there's 17 games left in this season. Give me a goddamn break. (laughs) Ridiculous. Nathan Lucas. All right. When we come back, we'll talk to our man, Adnan Verk, uh, about this Toronto Blue Jays team that still very much has playoff aspirations. Win today makes a lot of this discourse, uh, I don't know, go away, but softens it for uh, tomorrow. And we'll talk about his Eagles, who play on a Thursday night this week. I'm Ben Ennis. This is the Fan Drive Time. Sports at 590 The Fan. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sports 959, The Fan. I'm Matt Ennis. It's still right in front of the Blue Jays. Right there. All right. So they don't have the tiebreaker against either the Rangers or the Mariners. So what? Two more games against Texas to put themselves back into the playoff picture. They are currently tied the exact same record as the Mariners. But as I mentioned, don't hold the uh, tiebreaker. So for all intents and purposes, on the outside of the playoff picture, looking in. Now a half game back of the Rangers with uh, Yusei Kikuchi on the mound tonight against Jordan Montgomery. All right, let's talk to... Our pal. It's a Wednesday, which means it's an Adnan Verk day. He of MLB Network. How's it going, Adnan? I'm doing great, Ben. I thought we were going to have a lot of good things to be talking about, and then the last couple of games have not gone the Blue Jays' way. So let's get after it and hope for better results tonight. Uh, yeah. Hard, hard to be much worse for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who's 0 for 8 in this series with, with four strikeouts, Adnan. I, my, my voice is a little raw from uh, yelling about, you know, what, what's gone on with Vlad this season, and the fact that really there's not been a ton of accountability as far as his spot in the lineup. He's, he's hitting third again tonight. I get it. It's Vlad, and, and this, the possibility very much exists for him to have like a 3-4 homer game tonight against the lefty at Rogers End. Wouldn't that be so nice? But it, it's been a pretty long sample this season, and recently in the first two games of this series, He's been abysmal. I know I've talked to you about the fact that Bo Bichette was bumped down to seventh in the order in August of last season, and that was almost the point of demarcation where he took off and was the best hitter in the American League down the stretch last year, continuing into this year. 
I get, is there an argument to be made, if not to remove Vlad from the lineup for a game, um, for at least bumping him down the lineup? Yeah, I don't think I'd take him out of the, the lineup. But you're right, bumping him down is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's at the point now, I mean, as you and I both know, the results are what they are. Vlad is hitting 214. One homer his last 14 games. He's having his worst season since his rookie year in 2019, where he had a 106 OPS+. plus. His OPS+, plus this year, 111. And for the uninitiated, of course, 100 is average. So that's 22 points lower than last year. was 133. And the big shock of the quandary which remains is how in the hell can he not hit at home? He's homered just twice in his last 23 games at Rogers Center, hitting under the Mendoza line in that stretch at 198. And he's slugging under 300, which is almost impossible to do if you're Vlad Jr. at home. It doesn't make any sense, and I'm with you. I would at least try to move him down and do something because other guys are hitting, like David Schneider, we'll get to in a second. But Vlad Jr. is not getting it done, and you can't make any more excuses, and unless he's dealing with an injury that I'm not aware of, this is put up or shut up time. And the Jays had such positive vibes, man. These last few days going into this series, I said, all right, take care of the bottom feeders. Ten and six, they have that 16-game stretch against bad teams, specifically seven and two over the nine-game stretch, right? Two or three, two or three A's, Royals. Hey, man, take care of business. You sweep the Royals seven and two. Now you got the Rangers one-and-a-half game lead. You're up to the second wild card now, which is not probably the best thing in the world because they need to face the Rays, but who cares? Let's just get into the playoffs and figure it out. And then those two games go, but as bad as they could go, and you mentioned Bo, Again, small sample size, two for 16. He's mm. hitting a buck 25 in four games since returning from the aisle on that quad strain. I know it's obvious, but Vlad Jr. and Bo, Bo have got to be better if the Jays are going to make the playoffs. You know, you bring up David Schneider, and, and yeah, that, that brings a, file, a smile to every, every Blue Jays fan's uh, face considering he's off to the best start in the history of the major leagues through 25 games. It, it's been unbelievable. And another home run yesterday, like he just – he refuses – to let up he's a 28th round pick not somebody anybody had on the radar even in spring training i was talking to ben nicholson smith yesterday he's like i don't even remember him being in in major league camp uh in in february and, and march before the season and all of a sudden he's been the best hitter in baseball over like a nearly a one month uh stretch eight home runs in those 25 games to to just get that out of nowhere just like falls out of the sky into your lap and and still be on the outside of the playoff picture looking in, having one of the best uh, team-wide ERAs in all of baseball. I get it. There's some things that have gone against this team this season, and and definitely you can point to some of the weird luck things with runners in scoring position, and the home road splits are super, super weird, and and unless somebody can point to a reason for it, I have no other reason uh, or no other recourse than to say that it's it's luck-based, that the Blue Jays have the fifth-highest road slugging percentage, but the 23rd-highest home slugging percentage but outside of that like how how do you get luckier than a david schneider landing in your lap to to waste that feels like an absolute waste of a season yeah i mean that and that's what's so frustrating is because you're not going to have these kinds of moments like it's Again, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but if they don't make the playoffs, Benny, my God, with that starting pitching and the way those guys have performed, I mean, again, Manoa like lost cause. It was just a bad season, and it happens, and without him, you still have all these guys stepping up. Kikuchi, I mean, look at these numbers, 2-4-4 ERA across 10 starts since the All-Star break. Only Cole Reagans has a lower ERA among AL pitchers over that time. He's 4K shy of a career high, 120 ERA plus, easily the best of his career. He's only allowed two homers in 55 and a third innings since the break. Like, that's stunning. 
that that's your number four starter putting up those kinds of numbers. Like if the Jays make the playoffs, we were discussing last night and will be never who's the rotation. And I said, Gosman, Barrios, Bassett. Bassett yeah. was almost the first AL pitcher to 15 wins. But think about the weapon of Kikuchi and perhaps Ryu coming out of the bullpen. So it's um, you get despondent thinking, how could you waste a season like this from Kikuchi? And, and to Schneider, I mean, six homers in 33 at-bats against Southpaws. That's a homer every five and a half at-bats. Amazing. And in his first 25 games, my man's hitting 370 with eight home runs and 20 RBI. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And one of the great things about baseball is when you look at these kinds of numbers, you get crazy names. Since RBI became official in 1920, uh-huh. the only other player with 20 or more RBI and a 500 OBP in his first 25 games, <laughs> Bob Hurricane Hazel, back in 1955-57. So if it's good enough for Bob Hurricane Hazel, it's good enough for David Schneider. The Jays can't waste these kinds of performances and not get into the dance. Yeah, it's funny. Like, as much as I want to say that this guy is for real, at least as a, uh, an above-average um, offensive major league player, you do go through some of the lists, like the, the the names that surround him on these best starts in major league history lists. Like, there's some good players, but, again, uh, yeah, the, the best players in the history of the game aren't on there. There are, like, some, some weirdo starts to careers. Like, where are you on the sustainability of David Schneider? Well, that's the thing. It gets funny because you go, oh my God, he's the next great Blue Jay. I go, hey, I'm not sure if he's going to be, you know, Tony Fernandez here. But I'm like, it's a good story. At the very least, he's going to be competing for a job next year, right? Before he would have said, who's the guy with the goggles and the stash? And all of a sudden he goes off at Fenway and you go, okay, well, you know what? Clearly we're going to get some playing time here. I don't think they re-sign Matt Chapman. He's going to get a big contract and they've got to save up their money for Boba Shett when he hits free agency and potentially Vlad Jr. and these pitchers, et cetera. But... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if Schneider's going to be a star, but he's certainly playing like one. And it goes back to our point. Forget about the names in the back of the jerseys. Look at who's playing well. Move up Schneider, move down Vladdy. I know it hurts egos, but we've got to win these games right now. Uh, so you brought up uh, the name Alec Manoa, who's uh, been in the news the last couple of days as, as the word is starting to break that he will not throw another pitch in anger professionally this season, which I guess, which we, I all, guess we all we all could have figured, figured that. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Why do I hear why myself? Do I hear myself? That's probably not That's ideal. Probably not ideal. Anyways, Anyways uh, uh, so yeah, he's not going to throw a pitch again this season. There's apparently some pushback from his camp that he was demoted because of performance reasons. Although you look at the numbers that he put up when he was in the major leagues and you understand it, like where's your belief in the in the bounce back capabilities of, of Alec Manoa, a guy that was a, a major league baseball network correspondent for you guys earlier this season. <laughs> Yeah, we love him at the network. Everyone's like, man, this guy's great. He's got a great personality, and he's fun, and he's fun-loving, and he's obviously, most importantly, excellent on the mound. But this is quite the fall from grace, man. I mean, uh, you and I discussed the fact when he got sent down, I think that was the right decision, right? Take a deep breath, assess the situation, and let's climb back up. And guys like Roy Halladay have done that and gone all the way down from class and became a Hall of Fame pitcher. So away we go. And then I think we would agree it was a little rushed when he came back. I would have thought, hey, three or four starts in the minors. Instead, it was only two. He looked good against the Tigers. Then things went awry. And now who knows what, what other issues he has off the field, mental health, whatever it may be. But he just hasn't been the guy. So you really, what you have to do is you can't bank on him. You can't be reliably saying Manoa's going to be a guy who's going to be top three in the signing race. Like just, just forget that Alec Manoa. Just look at him as a young pitcher who has promise and potential and had a disastrous season. That's it. Don't say he's an ace. Don't say he's number two. Say we think he's going to be a member of our rotation in 2024. But we're not certain that that's the case. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, we have an outstanding starting staff. We're second in the majors in ERA. And we feel pretty good about this. Ryu's not going to be back. Okay, so theoretically Manoa is one of our top five. But um, 
the way it looks right now, he isn't the same person he once was, but we're confident with deep breaths and a full season of off-season conditioning and different approaches, both mentally and physically, we can get him back where we were. But I think you have to really caution against expectations. Because if you say to yourself, eh, it's a bad year, if these things happen, he's still great, that isn't necessarily the case. I, I can go throughout baseball history and find you guys who looked really good and then fell off, Jabba Chamberlain, etc. So I, I think we got to be really careful here, Ben, and say whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for him to get back right, and let's be patient with this. And I think the Blue Jays were a little bit impatient earlier this season, and now it's time to stake back and really, really kind of let him develop. And, and hopefully he's a guy six, eight months from now. Yeah, uh, fingers crossed. But, yeah, I, I think he's going to have to earn his way back onto this Major League roster. I don't imagine anything's going to be handed to him next uh, February, March. Um, so, yeah, I, you mentioned the number of wins that Chris Bassett has this season, which – I. I mean, I was looking at that before before the, sh- uh, before the show today as well, that his 14 wins are tied for the American League lead. Uh, Adam Wainwright picked up win number 199. Finally, maybe it's actually going to happen for Waino this season that he gets to 200. You look at the active leaders in wins. Justin Verlander, of course, at the top of the pile, 255. He is 40 years old. He's had, like, I can't imagine anybody having a career as uh, decorated, but as long as Justin Verlander had. I mean, so it's a two-parter. One, like we always talked about, hey, the, the home run record being unbreakable. Eh, wasn't the case. Um, this being the actual uh, unbreakable record of uh, another 300-win starting pitcher. And secondarily, man, I, I know stats, different stats have taken over different levels of import over the last couple of years, and I'm all for it. And I, I understand that on base percentage and maybe OPS or OPS plus or WRC plus is more important than batting average. I'm still aware of batting average. It's still cool when Luis Arise is hitting near 400. Like I, I, I follow this sport every day. I have no idea like who the, the wins leaders are, or at least it, it's not very much on my radar. Can you imagine an, another, or can you think of another baseball statistic that has gone more by the wayside than pitcher wins? The other one I would say would be saves. Like, I think there was a time we'd always look at saves and go, oh my God, they're so important and so valuable, and now that's no longer the case. That's the only one I can think of, because you're right. When it comes to wins, it's no longer what it once was. And it's interesting, watching Verlander last night at 255 wins and thinking, okay, can he get to 300? I'm like, no. Like, he's 40 years old, for God's sakes. He'd have to average 15 wins a season for three years. That's an average. More than likely, he's going to get 12 or 13 wins a season. That's four years. Now we're talking 44. No major injury again. Maybe 45. Like, that's that's going to be awfully tough. And he's already going to the Hall of Fame. Like, this isn't a situation where you go, Verlander has to get to 300 wins or he's not gaining admittance to Cooperstown. So, Sabathia is like the next big name coming up for the Hall. I believe he's 2025. And he's got 251 wins, 3,000 strikeouts. You go, yeah, we're good. It used to be 300 wins. Let's lower that to 250. Let's lower it to 215, quite frankly, because pitchers are not going to win the way they used to. But, yeah, wins is definitely a big one. When I was looking at the Cy Young numbers the other day, I said, Garrett Cole's going to win the Cy Young. And I did a little essay on it, and I said, who else is in the mix? And Gosman, of course, I love. But his ERA is fairly inflated compared to Cole. It's like a half a run higher. But he does have a ton of strikeouts, which is great. And, of course, if you look at his war, Gosman's right there. But Sonny Gray, in terms of ERA, is fifth. And I looked at his one loss, though, and he's seven and six. And I said, what world are we living in? Sonny Gray might be like third in the sun, and he's seven and six this season for a team that's going to win the division. Ben, this isn't like it's the Royals where they don't win a lot of games. No, he's on a team that's going to win the division. I know it's essential, but still, they're going to win 85, 88 games. This guy's got seven wins and has a sub-three ERA. So you're right. It's bonkers to think about. And to further your point, Wainwright, last night we were watching, and with a little bit of Schadenfreude saying, he's not going to get to 200 wins. He has an ERA of eight 
since June 17th, which was his last win. He's 0-10 over that stretch. That's Adam Wainwright, who I don't think is a Hall of Famer, but nice guy, good pitcher. He's definitely going to be doing some media, I'm sure, next year. TBS, maybe with us. Who knows? And I'm watching the game going, they just got to get to five innings. And please, God, can we get 15 outs against the <laughs> Orioles? And Wainwright left with the lead, even though it was 3-2, runners on. I'm like, oh, my God. And somehow the bullpen preserved it. But it's taken that guy three months to get a win. And he's got three more weeks to get one more win just to get to 200. Forget about 300. Just to get to 200. This is 18 years of Adam Wainwright. So it's pretty bonkers, man. But, yeah, Saves is the only other one that I go, I'm with you. I used to always know who had the most wins. It's, oh, two-time 20-game winner, that kind of stuff. Oh, this guy's got 40 saves. Saves that nobody cares about. Like I said the other day, Klaus is having a great year. And I looked. He's leading in saves. He's also leading in blown saves. So I go, okay, so this guy's really not that special. Let's be honest. He's, he's not the best closer of the game. I take it back. Yeah, no, it's true. Jordan Romano is six back of him. He's got uh, 34 this season. Uh, not a ton of those are are, are super um, uh, stress free. But you know what? That's that's kind of the nature of the game when when you're protecting leads, especially for a team with a limited offense like the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. I, I, I want to talk about Mike Trout here for a second, Adnan, because yeah. that that news. Man, and, and, and Bob Nightingale's got to get a better editor, I think, where, like, maybe next time he writes a story where there's a huge piece of breaking news, maybe it's, like, closer to the top of the story, maybe in the headline. <laughs> that thing was buried. Uh, and good on anybody that, that, that figured it out and, and brought it to light. But it was a pretty big news item that maybe the, the best uh, right-handed hitter in the history of, of the sport uh, could be traded this offseason. It's a guy that entirely controls his destiny, um, uh, and has a no-trade clause, so it would be up to him whether he wants to move, and if he wants to move, it would be up to him on whether he accepted a trade to whatever team the Angels get the best offer from. But it did feel like something I've never heard uh, about Mike Trout or his relationship with the Angels. To me, it really put it more than 50-50 that, that he's moved this offseason, as long as he's amenable to it. But I imagine once Shohei signs somewhere... If he wants to win it all, like that seems like the best option for him. I'm with it, Ben. Where there's smoke, there's fire. I'd go 60-40, and once Otani officially signs, it's 70-30. Because the Angels are basically saying, hey, we thought we could win with Trout being a centerpiece and adding Rendon and Otani becoming the superstar, and it didn't work. The three-headed monster never worked. Trout got hurt too much. Rendon definitely got hurt too much. And Otani got hurt a little bit, but that really wasn't the issue. The issue was we don't have anybody else in our pitching stinks. So let's rebuild this thing. And I think it's the right move for both sides. I really do. Trout's owed, I think, about $240 million still on that contract. Like, that, that's not going to age well. And, mm. you know, if you want to go from the team perspective, he's only playing 120 games a year. I don't think he's played 145 since 2017. Like, that's a good six years since he played nearly a full season. So it's been a while. Like, if you get Mike Trout, you're going to have to know he's missing 30 to 40 games. Like, best case, 120, 130 games. Now, of course, the team signing him says... Dude, the guy's a superstar. As you said, the best right-handed hitter of all time. Potentially, he's a three-time MVP. And by going somewhere else, he'll have something to prove. And that's the point Harold Reynolds was making to me yesterday, and he's absolutely right. If Trout stays in the Angels, he's going to be languishing there for years to come, unmotivated, frustrated, etc. If the team is basically saying, hey, we'd like to move you. You know, there's a, it's definitely a shot to your ego. Like, hey, we don't think you're the guy, and we want to explore other options, blah, blah, blah. And Trout goes, yeah, fine, cool. I get to pick the team, and let's make this work. And he goes to Philadelphia. He grew up in South Jersey as a Phillies fan. All of a sudden, he goes to Philly. Could you imagine Trout and Harper on the same team? Like, that star power is insane. What if he goes to the Yankees, who we keep saying they're too old and too injury-prone? And I get it. 
Trout's not young, and he definitely is, I would say, it's fair to say, injury prone. Yep. But still, Trout at Yankee Stadium, like, that would immediately energize that guy. You wouldn't tell me you wouldn't get the best of Mike Trout. I'm not saying he's a loafer. I'm just saying you go to a new team, of course, you got something to prove, chip on your shoulder, like, he's going to play out of his mind. And a motivated Mike Trout, I would love to see. So I think it makes sense for both sides. The Angels know they're not close to winning. They're going to lose Otani. If Otani wanted to stay, he would have stayed. He would have already signed the contract extension. He's gone. See ya. So Trout might as well get the heck out of Dodge, and wherever he goes, he can pick the team, and, and I think he should go East Coast. He's been the West Coast for a long time now. He's an East Coast guy. I mean, dude, go to Philly. Go to New York. Go to these major market teams and let everyone see the superstar that he is at a better time zone for you and me. Yeah, I, I, I would love to see it um, and, and not be with a very cursed Angels team. Maybe they're on this list. I mean, they won a championship in, in, in my memory, but, I mean, we just saw Aaron Rodgers go down with the Achilles injury, uh, the torn Achilles, four plays into his New York Jets tenure. This is a Jets team that got Zach Wilson instead of Trevor Lawrence because they beat two good teams in consecutive weeks um, uh, before the draft where there was one franchise Quarterback, uh, they didn't get him. They got Zach Wilson instead. This is coming on the heels of uh, another, what they thought was franchise quarterback being a total washout in Sam Darnold. They won a championship in 69, so it's more recently than than the Maple Leafs, but there's been so many notable heartbreak seasons for the Jets. Like, did, did the Aaron Rodgers Monday night situation put Jets fans at the top of the heap when it comes to more, most tortured fan bases? Yeah, it's definitely up there, man. I think the Browns right there only because their team left them in the middle of the night, Art Modell, back in 96. I think the Lions, because they haven't literally won a playoff game, I think, since 19... Or they've won one playoff game, I believe, since 1957. But but the Jets are up there because you're right. In relation to market size, fandom popularity, and expectations... It's a disaster. Like, it's New York. Like, I know you're not the Giants, but you're still New York, okay? If you're in New York, you should be successful. And they've got so many fans who are so passionate who still remember Namath. And, and the best moments they've had in 25 years is like a surprising back-to-back AFC run with Mark Sanchez and Rex Ryan, mm-hmm. which has been further scarred by butt fumbles and all the rest of it and the lack of longevity and the fact that ultimately you couldn't beat Belichick on a consistent basis and the Patriots had their number. So you go, all right, we have an incredible defense, legit defense. They shut down Josh Allen, a lot of problems with the Bills on top of winning that game. Good receivers running back. Just need a quarterback. Now, I'd love to tell you, Ben, I was smart enough to say this was going to happen, but I'm not. I said, I still think he's a really good quarterback. Last year, especially if you had him on your fantasy team, you would know he wasn't great. But I'm like, no, kind of like with Trout. Rodgers will be energized by the situation. Clearly, as well being in New York this summer. There he is at the U.S. Open. There he is in the Knicks game. Like, Rodgers definitely clearly a big fan, enjoying all we have here that New York City has to offer. But I would have thought he's a massive upgrade over Zach Wilson, and he'll be very good. I still didn't think they'd be better than the Chiefs, let's say. I don't think they're better than, you know, even in their own division, I said I don't think they're better than the Bills. So I would have had the Chiefs and the Bills ahead of them, and after that you can make a case, hey, Jets are better than the Ravens or Bengals on par, et cetera. But that injury, I mean, that is about as Jetsian as can happen, right? Like, (laughs) you have to step back. I'm I'm not, I don't mean to laugh, but just go Monday Night Football, Buck Aikman, ESPN, all the stars, New York. Wait, that's it? (laughs) He put one series and he's done? Like, I I believe Peyton Manning had the line on the Manning cast, like, hey, if he's done, like, I'm in trouble. Like, I got nothing else to say tonight. Like, is Zach Wilson still on the team? Like, it it sounds like a punchline and yet an incredibly painful one for the Jets. And, um, because of that defense, you can't completely count them out. Like I'm not going to say they're going to go four and thirteen now, but but maybe they're a nine and eight team. God, if it's Zach Wilson, they're in real trouble. So they're clearly scouring for veteran quarterbacks. 
Maybe my man Gardner Minshew, former mm-hmm. Eagle backup quarterback, could be in the mix. I, I hear his name banded about. Let's hope it's not Joe Flacco. Otherwise, the Jets are in real trouble. I don't think it's going to be Tom Brady, although that would be hysterical if Brady played for the Jets. So it, it, it feels like a very Jetsian thing to say. And, and as I was going to work, dude, I saw the Jets fans everywhere. As you know, my work five minutes away from the Meadowlands. So there was a lot of gangrene and a lot of, a lot of tears being shed after that series. To happen that early just is painful. I would have at least have liked to have seen him, you know, Take them to a comeback win, right? And on the last drive, he gets hurt fine. But that was just, it was awful to see. Yeah. No, fourth play from scrimmage for a a Jets offense that had legitimate Super Bowl aspirations. Yeah, you did. And I wonder, too, Ben, is that it? Like, I think he's got too much pride. I got to think he's going to try to rehab and play one more year. But then imagine this. There's already question marks how good Rodgers is, considering the fact he's coming off the subpar year by his standards. Now coming off that kind of an injury? Like, dude, it could be a really ugly end, even if he does come back for a year. No, it's one of the most devastating injuries you can suffer as, as any player. But, yeah, especially a guy that has to plant on that leg and, yeah, throw a football. At, at what will be then 40 years old. Seems unlikely, uh, but it also, as we were talking to Andrew Brandt of the Business of Sports, a uh, former Packers executive earlier on in the show, that there's, you know, uh, $30 plus million headed his way uh, as long as he doesn't retire. So he may not play again for the Jets, but I, I, I find it hard to believe that Aaron Rodgers, as many millions as he's earned throughout the course of his career, is going to walk away from whatever, like $38 million bucks. Seems yeah. Uh, unlikely, but yeah, the Jets definitely... Moving up higher on the list of of most cursed uh, fan bases. Adnan, it is always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Love Andrew Brandt. Love catch up with you, Ben. Let's hope the Jays get a win tonight. Otherwise, it's going to get ugly. I swear to God, two days ago, I said, oh, Jays win three or four. Rangers are done. Now it could be going the other way. Let's hope not. Yeah, I'm going to the game. So, yeah, yeah, let's let's get a victory uh, so that, yeah, I don't walk home uh, in total sadness. (laughs) Give Uh, him hell, man. David Schneider. All right, see you, man. See you, All right, there's Adnan Verk. MLB Network. All right. Uh, I will say one last thing on the Aaron Rodgers situation. Did I expect him to go down with an Achilles injury? Torn Achilles? Four minutes, four plays into the first game of the season for the Jets? I did not. Could you have anticipated, though, that the 39-year-old guy who was coming off an injury-plagued season would suffer some form of injury? Yeah, I think you could have reasonably assumed that. Did the New York Jets rightly understand that there was a massive opportunity considering the offensive weapons, considering the ready-made defense to win a Super Bowl? That's why they went out and got Aaron Rodgers. And did they believe Zach Wilson was standing between them and realizing that possibility? You sure better believe it. So why then, those two things being true, was Zach Wilson the backup quarterback with no insurance policy? Like, why is it a scramble now? I mean, I get why you, again, couldn't have anticipated after not even a full 60-minute football game and 60-plus going overtime against the Bills that you didn't expect to be scrambling for quarterbacks now. But, like, again, could you have afforded to waste this season with Zach Wilson if Aaron Rodgers got injured in Week 10? Nah. Did you think Zach Wilson was good enough to lead this team to where you expected it to go? Like, also, nah. So you can talk a big game all you want about how this is his team and how you're comfortable with Zach Wilson. You showed us with your actions that that's not the case. And you tried to get greedy. You thought you could get through an entire season with Aaron Rodgers and that sitting behind the future Hall of Famer would benefit Zach Wilson 
and you could come out the other end having won a Super Bowl and then having Zach Wilson see what it took to win that Super Bowl and then be your next franchise quarterback. Instead, you got a whole lot of the same. And we saw this script play out a season ago. All those weapons, save for Brees Hall, were there last season. Mike White ain't there, I suppose, but you're going to get some reasonable facsimile, I guess, as a backup quarterback, and they went 7-10. So you you, you blew it. All right, when we come back, Mike Babcock has yet to coach in even a preseason game, but making headlines already in Columbus. We'll talk to our pal Elliot Friedman of 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Horfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis, getting you set for the Blue Jays. And Rangers tonight at Rogers Center, perhaps a closed roof Rogers Center. It has yet to be opened today. Uh, we'll see if that changes before first pitch thrown by Yusei Kikuchi against Jordan Montgomery. All right, Mike Babcock has not yet even coached the Blue Jackets through a single preseason game, already dealing with a bit of controversy, maybe even more than a little bit of controversy. So if you haven't seen it so far, and good for you for avoiding it, I suppose. Uh, Paul Bissonette on the Spittin' Chicks, uh, and Chicklets podcast told the story of, of a text he got from somebody, an unnamed player, and, and the story from that unnamed player says that Babcock requested to see the photos on Captain Boone Jenner's phone this summer to, to know, quote, the type of person you are. So the Jackets, Babcock, Jenner himself have denied the story. Spit and Chicklets, including Paul Bissonette, has doubled down. Mike Commodore, he's always weighing in on all things Mike Babcock. He's doubled down as well. Uh, The story continues today on the 32 Thoughts podcast. Well, you can hear how Johnny Goudreau feels about the subject as he was interviewed by Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman. Mr. Friedman joins me now from Las Vegas as it's uh, media day. How's it going, Fridge? I'm good, Ben. How was the summer? Uh, it's going it's going pretty well. Yeah, I guess it it, it feels very uh, fall-like here uh, in the city of Toronto. The Blue Jays playing important um, regular season games with their with their playoff lives on the line here. And yeah, we're talking yep. hockey. Um, maybe maybe not exactly what we thought we'd be talking about when it came to the the first conversations I've had since the summer uh, about hockey. But man, maybe we we should have had our antennas up for this. Like. And I listened to the podcast today, and it's always great. Uh, today, no exception. But, yeah, do you, do you think this is like a, a, a moment of uh, of eye-opening for the Columbus Blue Jackets getting in bed with Mike Babcock? I absolutely do. I, I absolutely do. And I think that it's also a reminder, Ben, that, you know, Babcock's name uh, is still something that uh, creates a lot of reaction around it. And a lot of very polarizing reaction. Um, look, I uh, I think that uh, you know, I, like 
I look. I thought it was going to be a challenge here. There's no question about that. Um, but I didn't realize it would be quite like this. Like the moment something uh, remotely controversial came out, it was a frenzy. And I don't know if Columbus expected this to be the case. I don't know if I expected this to be the case, and maybe I should have. But you know, that's why I wrote what I wrote last night, mm-hmm. and uh, and and said what I said today. It's that, like, I, I knew he would have to be up to a high standard, a very high standard, because of what he's trying to come back from. But he's got absolutely no wiggle room for anything because of the passion and the polarization that anything he does brings out. Can you operate as an NHL head coach in this manner? And, and, and I, yeah, go ahead. Can, can you, can I you think, operate I, this way? I, I think that's the great question. Like Ivanka asked me something similar last night and I, I said to her, like, that's the question we're about to find out here. Um, you know, can I, cause I don't know, like if, if everywhere you go, you know, if everywhere you go, you're being asked the questions about him and, and he's the story. I think that's hard. Like, you know, one of the th- reasons, you know, Babcock picked Columbus and there were some other teams that talked to him and I think they are in bigger uh, markets, but you know, I think one of the reasons that, you know, Babcock and Columbus thought each other was a great fit is because, you know, it's not the biggest market. There isn't a huge amount of media following the team around. It was like a kind of place where, you know, he could work a bit more quietly. It wasn't Detroit. It wasn't Toronto in the NHL circle. Well, you know, now we've learned that that really doesn't matter. And, you know, if you listen to the podcast today, and, and you know, Ben, you said you did, the, the name I brought up was Tim Johnson. Yeah. Like, I remember that in, in 1998 when, you know, they, they brought him back for the next year, and then during spring training they decided this is not going to go away, and they made a change. Now, I'm not convinced that anything like that's going to happen here, but it just reminds me of the similar situation. You know now that anything that happens with him is going to be – a big story and you've got to be a bit nervous about that if you're the blue jackets well and and listen i I, i'm sure here's my guess is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle of this but i'm also i'm imagining mike babcock is is pretty aware of of the fact that he would be scrutinized, uh, scrutinized very heavily in his return to the national hockey league i also look at some of the the principals and, and Paul Bissonnette, maybe less so, but certainly Mike Commodore, like the head of the snake here. There's obviously a sect of players that didn't enjoy their time with Mike Babcock. And I don't know if they have mm-hmm. it out for him, but like clearly, and I, I don't know where the, the, the reality lies. I, I don't know the man personally. And obviously the stories speak for themselves. I also believe in redemption and like people changing. I, I don't know. Is there something Mike Babcock can do to like change the minds of, of some of these people that, that really do think the worst of him? No, I don't think they can. He can, but like to me, it, it comes down to, like, regardless of what someone like uh, thinks about Mike Babcock, to me, the question comes down is, is there truth in what people yeah. are saying? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I, like I've said a lot in the last twenty-four hours, 
like it's hard to figure out exactly right now. And I think that's why the player, like for all the comments yesterday, the players association is still investigating this. And I think they're going to talk to the Columbus players. And I think they're going to try to get a better handle on it because like, I don't know specifically that Babcock took phones and took, took a phone from a guy's hand and went through the photos. Like, I don't know that. But I do know that this kind of thing, he's done it for years. Like, now, I will say this. There are some people that have reached out to me to kind of defend it and say it's not as bad as it's being made out to be. But it's such a firestorm now that a lot of those people don't want to go on the record. But there's other people who are clearly uncomfortable with it. And and I think because Babcock is such a, uh, again, a polarizing guy, a lot of people are willing to privately make their opinions known. Mm. And, you know, some people say, like, like Bissonnette should reveal sources. That's tough. Like, people say to me, you should reveal sources, and I, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not – I don't feel that. Let's put it this way. I don't think Bissonnette's wrong in the sense that, that, you know, something happened here that made people feel uncomfortable. And so now we just have to figure out how to deal with that. I think – like I said, I think, I think, Dan, I think there were some people, like some people have told me they've been through this process with him before and they don't think it's a big deal. But other people have, have told me they didn't like it. And I think now, I, I think one of the things now is that, especially with younger and younger players, and the Blue Jackets have some young players, I think people are concerned about how they felt. Yeah, I mean... Johnny Goudreau was convincing on the podcast today. But, yeah, like, obviously, Johnny Goudreau and the financial security that he has and, you know, the fact that he's Johnny Goudreau, he would feel pretty comfortable, I'm sure, saying, hey, Mike Babcock, I know you're getting paid well, but go screw. Like, uh, no thanks. Uh, right? Like, we were, talk- we were talking about that, actually. Like, who, who has more power, Babcock or Goudreau? Like, people were debating that. So it's, it's funny you bring that up. Yeah, well, I, I, I always think it's the player. Uh, and especially if you just look at contract terms, uh, it is, it is the, the player. But yeah, the younger players, I guess it's a different deal. And it's a different era. And Mike Babcock should, should understand that it's a different era as far as player discipline and, and the acceptable behavior for an NHL head coach. But I do also, I, I must say, Elliot, believe it's a different era when it comes to player empowerment. And, like, who's yep. not going to believe any young player who comes out with this story? And, and But, I mean, I guess the, the other side of that would be maybe you put a black mark on your career. Maybe your career is forever altered if you're the guy that comes out uh, against the p- potential future Hall of Fame head coach. Like, it, do, do you think a younger player would feel empowered enough to, one, either say, I don't feel comfortable with this to Mike Babcock, or, or maybe two, and, and this was one of the questions you asked Johnny Goudreau, whether – he would be the, the guy that some of these younger players would come to and say, like, what do I do about this? Well, that's, what, that's why I asked Goudreau that question. Like, did anyone come to you and say they were uncomfortable? And, you know, he said no. And, uh, um, but I wanted to ask him that because I thought it was just one of the things that had to be asked. I think, like, I think it depends. Like, Ben, like, you know, I was talking about this with a friend of mine uh, this morning. And, you know, he was asking me about the story. And, you know, we were debating, like, now, like, for example, like, my wife doesn't even like picking up my phone. But if she does, I just say, I got nothing to hide from you. Go look through it if you, if you really want to. And, um, but, like, if my work asked to do it, uh, even though I'm convinced Rogers knows everything I'm up to. They do. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at your phone like, earlier today, actually, in the, in, in the boss's office. 
<laughs> um, like I like I don't think I would allow that. But I had people who said to me they don't think that's a big deal. Like if I've, they you all know, like, I, and I don't like it when people say this. But some people say, well, if you've got nothing to hide, you wouldn't care. And I, I said I don't think that's right. I think you know some people just don't like. There's other things on your phone, like maybe you're linked to your bank or something like that. So I, like I like some people like find it really icky. Icky is a word I've heard a lot. But other people, like, I think it just depends on the person. Now, the one thing you point about younger is mm-hmm. that, um, like, there's no question I'm a lot more forceful now than I was when I was younger. Yeah. And I think that's a very fair question. And I think that's kind of, like, as, as I was told this morning, um, look, Goudreau's a veteran, Jenner's a veteran, but there are, Columbus has some really young players and really talented young players. And I think if there is going to be a concern here as the Players Association continues to investigate this, it's going to be about did any of those young players feel that this put them in a position that they were extremely uncomfortable with? Do you, are you aware of any timelines for this investigation or any of the specifics about, about what is actually taking place uh, between the NHLPA and Babcock? Uh, I, I just think that, uh, like I've just heard, they've been talking to the Columbus players about okay, what, uh, what are we actually, what are we dealing with here? Like, like yesterday morning, like the word here yesterday, and, and you kind of heard Bill Daly said on the pod was the initial reactions were, um, you know, nothing's necessary. This might not go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I just heard that there were some things as conversations continued throughout the day. There were just some concerns about how the young players felt. So I think the Players Association is going to try to get to the bottom of that. And I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. You know, I'm thinking about this from Mike Babcock's perspective as well. And again, I don't know the man, but I do know that this guy was very much, like I mentioned, Hall of Fame. Like, he is obviously on a Hall of Fame track, right? Stanley Cup winner, Olympic gold medalist, signs the big deal with the Glamour franchise in the NHL, and it goes so sideways um, that it put a bit of a stain on the resume. And then the stories afterwards and all the players that have come out. Like, how important is this stop in Mike, ja- uh, Mike Babcock's career as far as his, his ultimate NHL resume to, 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 to return himself to, to glory? Well, I, I think, Ben, like nobody wants anything to end badly, right? Um, like, and uh, I think it's, it's very important. Like, you know, Mike Babcock is financially secure enough that he could have not done this. But obviously, you know, trying again was, was very important to him. And, you know, as you said, we, you know, we're a month from the start of the season and, you know, look where, where we are. So, um, like I said, I don't know the way this is going to turn out, um, but, you know, like, you know, the one thing that, again, is that, you know, he, he has to realize he's got no margin for error here. Yeah. Like, if, if we've forgotten that, the, the events of the last 36 hours have reminded us of that. Um, I want to get your perspective as a newsbreaker. I mean, Spitting Chicklets is a spectacular podcast. It's very entertaining. Mm -hmm. And and Paul Bissonette, I mean, he's done some stuff for Sportsnet. Everybody knows how how funny and and good Biz is and how plugged in he is to the players. And they get guests that, man, we couldn't dream of getting because there's a a trust there. And there's obviously an experience factor as well with guys that they know. I mean, how has it changed your ability to gather news when there is a former player, somebody who has that, that trust of the players, I mean, it, 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 I imagine if I was a player, current or former, who had something they wanted to say, that would be my, my number one outlet. 
You know, I think this. I, I think that um, I've said this before, Ben, and I'll say it again. I, I think Biz is the most powerful media member in hockey. I oh, do. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, I, for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, like, I don't look at it that way. Like, there's, there's a lot of competition for the, for the job I try to do, and you have to be welcoming of competition. And, um, you know, I, 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 so I don't, uh, I don't have a problem with this. I really like Paul as a person. Um, I, I think he's done, a, like, I respect the work he's done. Um, you know, I think he's a bit of a wild man. He, he does things I certainly wouldn't. But that doesn't mean I don't respect him and his, uh, his process. So, look, I, I think on this one, um, like, there, I mean, there are clearly people who have been uncomfortable with this approach. And I think that's the real challenge with this particular story. Mm-hmm. Like there's some people who don't think it's a big deal, who've been through it. And there's other people who clearly do. And, you know, at the end of the day, is, is he right that there's someone who, um, uh, who was uncomfortable with it? Yeah, I, I think he was, but like, I, I just think Paul is a force yeah. and uh, I respect him for it. Uh, before that you go, do want to ask you a Leafs uh, question as the uh, prospect tournament cranks up on Friday and won't be long until we're talking about preseason games. Later on this, this month, it's been a while since I've seen anything definitive on, on William Nylander. Um, where are you on those discussions, whether they're happening or not, or, or whether they will continue throughout the course of the season? I expect that this will play out throughout the year. As far as I know, nothing is close. I don't have any reason to believe that anything has changed there. I just think that um, uh, I, I just think that it's going to play out throughout the year, and we'll see where it goes. I'll tell you this: I'm I'm actually moderately curious to hear if he plays any center. Hmm. Um, I, I've heard there's been at least some conversation about do we try this again. So I'm curious to see if that's going to occur. But as for his contract situation, I expect it to play out uh, over the year. Ooh, that's a nice little juicy uh, nugget. Hey, I can run with that. That's a segment for me tomorrow. Thanks for that, Fridge. Hey, no worries, Ben. I'm here to do your job. <laughs> All right, man. I- enjoy Vegas. Thanks for this. All right. Take care, Ben. Have a great week. Yeah, you too. Elliot Friedman, 32 Thoughts, Hockey Night in Canada, uh, down in Vegas for uh, Media Day. And the podcast, as you know, great. Uh, you want more information on this Mike Babcock situation? You want to hear from some of the principals, including Johnny Goudreau, who went through the phone picture thing he's on the podcast today as is deputy commissioner bill daly elliot friedman and jeff merrick so again i don't know who mike babcock is yeah pretty good indication from people who are very passionate about it boy Mike commodore did not enjoy his brief interactions with mike babcock throughout his career did he no i didn't he's not the only one lots of guys feel the same way but and as much as like it was such a negative story surrounding Mitch Marner and the uh, hey l- ranking players as far as guys you think work hardest to guys you think work least hard on a piece of paper and then showing that to the, the rest of the team, yeah, I, everything we've heard from Mitch Marner is that there's no ill will there, and that there was an eventual apology from head coach to player. We've heard many a Toronto Maple Leaf player sing the praises. Of Mike Babcock, notably not Austin Matthews. But John Tavares had positive things to say about the dude. So I think with all these things, you you take both sides of the equation, and boy, Johnny Goudreau was pretty convincing on the podcast 
and I would implore everybody to go listen to it in saying that, yeah, this is a guy that I thought was a novel approach. First time we've met, what better way to understand each other by than by looking at each other's phones and some pictures of our family and you know, kids and, and parents and grandparents and yada, yada, yada. And if I had a problem with it, I would have voiced my opinion with Mike Babcock. So that is a guy that's signed a maximum term deal, seven-year deal, to be the face of a franchise in the Columbus Blue Jackets. So, yeah, if Johnny Goudreau felt like it was inappropriate or just, like, frankly didn't want to do it, he could, in polite terms, in impolite terms, tell Mike Babcock, thanks, but no thanks. It's not like Johnny Goudreau is going to lose a minute of playing time because he's afraid of upsetting the head coach. But do I think maybe a Blue Jackets prospect might feel differently, no matter how prized they are, no matter what the draft pedigree is? Yeah, I think that is a tougher situation. If you are a guy that has no NHL equity, who's hoping to break camp with the Columbus Blue Jackets? Would you feel comfortable telling, despite the fact that he hasn't been in the NHL the last couple of years, still one of the most recognizable head coaching figures in the NHL? I really don't feel comfortable about this, even in the most gracious terms. Like, I, I buy that that would be an awkward situation. I don't think it's a, a, a black and white thing, though. I don't think it's a situation where Mike Babcock, and maybe it is. This is, in my experience, hearing both sides of one story, my experience is somewhere in the middle. I don't think necessarily Mike Babcock's trying to make people uncomfortable. That's trying to uncover like uh, some debauchery, something that he can make fun of you about. One, because, boy, that would be pretty evil. And two, because also Mike Babcock's aware of the maelstrom that could follow and the fact that the narrative surrounding him after his departure from Toronto, pretty negative, I'd say. Yeah. 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 Pain, man. Uh, it's, It's been painful, I'm sure. I mean, not when he goes to the bank, but like, when he thinks about his departure from Toronto and the stories that have been written about him and the things people have said, that's probably been painful. Does he want to change that? I bet. Now, that being said, like, maybe he has some blind spots and maybe he's doing things that, that he doesn't realize are hurtful or maybe there is, like, a level of, hey, I want to put you in an uncomfortable position. I am still Mike Babcock. Maybe, 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 maybe. I'm just guessing that it's probably closer to the middle of things because, boy, this guy has a lot to lose. Not financially, but like in the court of public opinion, and he's already lost so much. But man, this is a potential future Hall of Famer. And one more stubbing of the toe might take that thing off the table. One more stubbing of the toe for the Blue Jays, and we're going to have real problems on this radio show tomorrow. I mean, you got to at least split this home series against the Rangers, don't you? Here's something for you. Tonight's a must-win game, as decided by me for the Toronto Blue Jays against the Texas Rangers. Yusei Kikuchi on the mound against Jordan Montgomery. Blue Jays trying to salvage a split of the series. Blair and Barker are next. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.